so wonderful to be able to uh, join once again on another Lord's Day and, and worship with you all. Love to sing songs of significance, deep in meaning and theology. And I'm also grateful, uh, as Pastor Nick, he, he prayed that we are a church that um, is not just devoted to the exposition of the word and to singing good songs, but to loving and caring for one another. Uh, one of the things that has always attracted me to um, good, solid churches is when you see that a church really cares for its own. And so uh, I just want to echo what Nick said about the San Paulos. We love this dear family. And uh, is Janelle Smith here? Janelle, raise your hand a little higher for us. Hey, this is Janelle. Um, if you would like to help Nate and Brooklyn and the family, um, see Janelle. She's putting together a list of some needs so that they can be cared for well. Uh, I know there's um, a meal train going on, but if you want to help in any other way, you can see her, and she'd love to be able to uh, tell you how. Well, let's go to the Lord now in prayer. Father, again, we are so uh, thankful and privileged to be able to come to your word. Your word is holy and beautiful and true. It is authoritative. It brings rest and healing and hope. And so, Lord, we come now with eager expectation to hear from you that you would be honored and glorified and we would be satisfied in all that you are and all that you've done. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, hey, there's a question that every, every Christian, without question, should be able to answer. And the question is this, how can I come into a right relationship with God? Now, the majority of the world, I'm sure that you know, will likely answer that question with something like this. You have to be a good person. Try it. Talk to somebody about heaven about Jesus. Many of you have. Many of you have evangelized to friends, and family members, co-workers, fellow students, and you've had this conversation about how one gets to heaven, how one comes into a right relationship with the Lord, and you have heard someone say to you that the way that you get to heaven, the way that you can have a relationship with God is by being good. That if you're good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, then there is a likely chance that you will get into heaven. And I just want to remind us this morning, and so does Paul, that that is not good news. That is not good news. The good news of Jesus Christ is not you have to do your best. The good news of Jesus Christ is your best is never good enough. There is never, ever, Anything that you can do, no amount of law-keeping, no amount of obedience that can earn your place in heaven and establish a relationship with the creator of the universe. And Paul, what he'll do this morning is he's going to reiterate this by reminding the Philippians of the simplicity of the gospel, the beauty of the gospel message, but he's also going to do it by reminding us of the threats to the gospel. So let's pick up our exposition there in Philippians chapter 3, Philippians 3, and we'll read 1 through verse 3. Paul writes this, Finally, my brothers, 
Rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. If you're taking notes this morning, here's our main idea. The way to guard and maintain your joy in Christ, listen, church, is to keep your focus on Jesus and to be aware of the threats which attempt to add works to salvation. Let me say it again. The way to guard and maintain your joy in Christ is to keep your focus on Jesus and to be aware of the threats which attempt to add works to your salvation. Uh, I love that every week we are not only reading the Scripture, but we're reciting our articles. And so when the article about election comes up, I'm reminded of my own heart of what it means to be saved. Who established that? When it happened? Well, what, play, what part I play in all of that? We believe here that doctrinal soundness is extremely important. And so we emphasize that. We emphasize that in our doctrinal statement, in our preaching, in our Bible studies, in our discipleship. Why? Because if you believe the wrong things about Christ, you are in a world of trouble. If you believe wrong things about how one comes into a relationship with him, or how we're to live in light of that relationship, not only will your joy be threatened, but my fear is that people will be lost if they're confused about the gospel. And so Paul, you'll see here, he takes this subject matter very, very seriously. And he's passionate for the purity of the gospel. And he's protective of the church. And he's going to be proactive here as he confronts this error that was creeping its way into the Philippian congregation. And so, like the Philippians, I don't want anyone, anyone, anything, any podcast to be a detriment to your joy. I don't want anyone to fall victim to distortions of the gospel. And so that's why we're going to focus our attention on these verses here. Church, little theology lesson, the five solas that we talk about, let's, let's test ourselves. We believe that we're saved by what alone? Okay, grace alone. It's through faith alone. And who is it in alone? In Christ alone. And, and the basis for that, the authority for that is the scriptures alone. And ultimately, it's for whose glory alone? God's. We don't earn our justification. We don't earn a right standing with God. We don't receive forgiveness from God based on what we do. And that's what the Bible teaches. You can never earn your salvation. It is a free gift, we say, of grace. And that's why we need daily reminders. Because oftentimes we forget how free grace is. If we are not constantly reminded of the gospel, then what happens is we tend to drift back into a form of works. We, we, we tend to drift back into legalism. 
Because that's what our hearts want. Our hearts want the credit. Our hearts want the pat on the back. Our, our hearts want recognition for the things that we do and what we stay away from and what we pursue when in fact it is all owing to God's grace. So let me show you how the text breaks itself down here. Just three major headings in our outline. First, Paul is going to talk about the safeguard against these joy stillers. He's going to say, be joyful and be aware. And then the second point is Paul is going to direct us to the sinister nature of these joy stillers as he calls them dogs and evil workers and the mutilation. And we'll focus there on their character, their conduct, and their corrupt teaching. And then finally, we'll look at the solution to joy stillers. That Christians, as opposed to those who glory in their own works salvation or their own works righteousness, but true believers, hopefully you and me here today, we worship in the Holy Spirit, we boast in Jesus Christ, and we put no confidence in the flesh. That's our outline for these three verses. Let's begin there in verse 1. Paul again writes, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, again, is no trouble to me. And it is a safeguard for you. Now, some people make a lot uh, of um, Paul saying finally when he's not actually getting to the conclusion. And I, I just want to remind you that um, th this is not necessarily him landing the plane just yet. He finishes off chapter 3. He writes a whole other chapter. Um, th this word here uh, really can mean as for what remains. And so he pens another 44 verses as he writes this finally. But what he's saying is, hey, I'm going to transition my thought here. I've just talked about um, Christ and our, our need to be humble as Christ, to have that Christ-minded humility. And he talked about uh, himself and Timothy and Epaphroditus. But now is a, a contrast, a transition away from that to get to a real danger here. So Paul, even though he says finally he has a lot more to say now, this new topic that Paul is addressing, why is he stressing it? Why is it so important to him? Well, because he's moving away from what he's just said about we are to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, and he's going to contrast that with people who are walking in a manner that is denying the gospel. And so chapter 3 is really about a bunch of contrasts. What we see here, as we look at chapter 3, you see the true believer versus the false believer. We not only see that, but we see relationship versus religion. We see grace-based righteousness versus works-based righteousness. And Paul presents all of these contrasts here in chapter 3 to help the church guard their joy in Christ. You see, anytime anyone tries to convince you that in order for you to be saved, you need Jesus, but you also need, and as soon as they say also, no, 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 no. I remember when I got saved and I was so excited because it was a genuine salvation, transformation had taken place, the Spirit of God had come in me, changed me from the inside out, I'm getting rid of sin, I'm reading my Bible, I'm praying, I'm going to church, I'm singing, I never sang, I'm singing, and I'm so excited to be a Christian, and I met a group of guys playing basketball at LA City College, and they came to me and started to evangelize to me, and I said, whoa, whoa, hey, I'm a believer. 
And I started giving them the gospel. And they said, hey, fantastic. That is so good. Have you been baptized? And I said, no, I have not been baptized. You're not a Christian. Well, I'm not a Christian? No, you're not. Oh, man, I didn't read that section quite yet. Where, where, where is that? And they took me to Acts 2.38 and said, Repent and be baptized, each one of you, for the remission of your sins. And I said, oh, man, I thought I was saved. I feel, I feel saved. I, I believe Jesus has transformed me. But they said, no, 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 you're not, you're not a Christian until you get back. Okay, well, i got to go talk to my pastor then. Oh, no, no, you have to get baptized in our church. Whoa. Well, what, church, what church is that? And they went on to say that they were part of the L.A. Church of Christ, which is known as the Boston Movement. I didn't know all these things back then. But I'll tell you what, I was terrified on my way home. And I was driving like 20 miles an hour on the freeway. Because if I, if, I, if I died and crashed, maybe I'd be in hell. They said, Jesus, but. Jesus and. Jesus also. And Paul says, no, 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 no. That is not the message of the gospel. You see, what's at stake here is our joy and our freedom in our liberty in Christ. And let me say this, that joy is not an end to itself. Because really, joy is the byproduct. And you say, Dom, what, what do you mean byproduct? Yeah, it's a byproduct that comes from knowing Christ. Anyone, anytime someone tries to throw a stumbling block and add to the gospel, they're really getting between you and Jesus. And so we're going to take a look at this opening command and I just want to highlight a number of different observations. There's going to be five observations about this joy. Paul says here, be joyful. Rejoice in the Lord. That, that, that is a command. And up to this point, Paul's already talked about joy. This is a joy-filled epistle. We know that 16 times throughout the letter. 11 times already in just the first two chapters. But, but notice this first observation here is that Paul commands the church to rejoice. Present active imperative. So the way that we translate it is, go on constantly rejoicing. Be continually rejoicing. Which is to say that rejoicing, it's not an option. It's not an option for the Christian. We are actually commanded to rejoice. Another way to say that is, this must be your lifestyle. When people see you and observe you, they must see rejoicing going on in your life. Well, you say, how, how can I rejoice, though, when I have a very difficult situation? Sickness, COVID, trouble with pregnancy. I have a son or a daughter who's not walking with the Lord. How can I actually rejoice? How can I be commanded to rejoice when things don't seem to be going well. And we have to remember that this is coming from the Apostle Paul. And where is Paul writing? He's writing from prison. And so that tips us off that even though Paul is commanding this, there must be something to the command. And I think there is, because Paul, when he relates joy to the Christian and says you must rejoice, it has much less to do with what's going on around us and much more to do with what's actually going on inside of our hearts. The guy in prison, as we read the prison epistles, 
He's telling people outside of prison to rejoice. How can he do that? Why is he doing that? Well, because the rejoicing is going on in his heart. Secondly, it's not easy to obey this command. Yes, it's commanded, but we have to admit that it is not easy to obey the command. I can tell you like Nike, hey, just do it. Just just do it. Just just rejoice. But that's not going to help very much. See, being joyful is not an automatic response. No, we don't just easily gravitate towards rejoicing, especially when things are difficult. But Paul says this is a learned response. It's something that you and I, we need to grow in. It's something that we can grow in. And you say, well, how do we know that it's something we can grow in? Well, because Paul grew. Look at Philippians chapter 4 and verse 11. Philippians 4 and verse 11, Paul says this, Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I'm in. You see, happiness comes from favorable circumstances, but not joy-filled contentment. That's because your circumstances provide a much too fickle foundation. We, we say, on Christ the solid what? Rock I stand. If you're just leaning on your circumstances, that is sand, not rock. You say, how can Paul have such joy in light of his circumstances? He's in prison. People want to do him harm. Well, remember back to the previous sermons. Paul is rejoicing because the gospel is being proclaimed. People are getting saved. Lost people are coming to faith. The church is being strengthened. People are being encouraged. And so he can rejoice even in the most difficult of circumstances. Our third observation will give us a clue how we can have the kind of attitude that Paul actually has here. Look back at the text with me. Thirdly, the command is rejoice, but it's rejoice in the Lord. You see, our rejoicing comes as a result of being incorporated into Christ. This union with Christ is what brings about our joy. And that phrase, in the Lord, it appears nine times. In Christ appears ten times. So it seems like Paul wants us to understand that our joy is inexorably linked to Jesus himself. Rejoice, not in your circumstances. He he knows that circumstances are difficult. Rejoice, not in your accomplishments. Rejoice, not in your fluctuating feelings. You see, he says, I want you to rejoice, but you're not rejoicing in principles. You're not rejoicing in practices. You're rejoicing in a person, in Jesus. So look, if you're lacking joy right now, and maybe you are, maybe you find yourself this morning, it's hard for me to rejoice the way Paul commands me. It's, it's probably because you're focused on a particular situation and not so much on the Savior. And so Paul is reminding all of us right now, if you want to recapture your joy, then set your sights back on Jesus. You say, well, I'm a little confused here because I look at non-Christians, non-believers, people who aren't at church this morning, but they're watching the game and they're barbecuing right now or they're on the soccer field, they're doing other things, and they look like they're having a good old time. They seem happy. How is it that they seem to be so happy and yet I'm a Christian and I feel bad and guilty because I don't have 
joy. Well, let me just remind you, it could be positive thinking, it could be optimism, but whatever it is, those outlooks on life, they're temporal and baseless at best if they are not fixed on Christ. In contrast, though, the Christian's joy, it's fixed. It's eternal. And you say, how do you know that? Well, because Jesus is. So if your hope is in Christ, because he is eternal, then you have that hope forever. You have that joy forever. You have that satisfaction forever. You have that contentment forever. Aren't you glad the Bible says that Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever? Your circumstances, they're going to change. It might be a good day today. It might be a horrible day tomorrow. You don't know. It doesn't matter. Jesus stays the same. So again, our rejoicing is in the Lord. It is in Christ himself. And he provides the reasons and the resources for our joy. Now you think of it this way. You have Jesus who is the basis of our joy. Right? We rejoice because of what he's done for us. We're saved. We're sanctified. He is the basis, but he's also the object of our joy because he is the one that accomplished it. And not only is he the basis and the object for our joy, but he's also the source. He wants to fill us with joy. He, he even said this in John. He says that my joy may be in you and your joy may be made what? Fool. Well, fourthly, I want you to see that Paul is actually repeating himself here. He says right there, look, to write the same things again is no trouble to me. Paul says, I've preached this message before. You've heard it. The church was actually planted based on this message. I taught from the scriptures this very message. I discipled my, my life. My ministry is this gospel message. It's the same old gospel story. He admits it, and he doesn't apologize for it. Remember what he told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2.2. He said, For I determined to know nothing among you except what? Christ and him crucified. There are a lot of churches that want something new and something fresh and something exciting. And we just say, the gospel is the most exhilarating thing in all the world. You don't need freshness and newness like novelty is better. No, what you need is the same old gospel story and what we do is we hold the gospel up every week like it's a jewel, and we just want to look at the different angles of it and how beautiful it is. And you can do this forever, and you will never exhaust it. It's the same gospel story. Now, the question is, why is Paul here, though, reminding them that they need to keep their eyes fixed on the gospel and Jesus? Because sometimes when we fixate on our pain, we fixate on problems and people. What we do is we lose our perspective. So constantly rehearsing the gospel, talking about the joy that we have in the gospel, getting it firmly planted in our hearts and our minds, that is what preserves our joy. One of the things I loved about being uh, with Pastor Scott at Grace Church of the Valley is he'd always give me these nuggets of truth that he got from John MacArthur. So it was cool because I felt like I'm, I'm learning from the man himself. And, and Scott would say these things over and over again. And I realized, I don't think he's really interested in teaching me as much as he's reminding himself. So he would say things like, Dom, whatever you do, be a broker of the word. Study the word, teach the word. That's your life. That's what you do. 
be a broker of the word. He'd say, Dom, if someone cuts you, you better bleed local church. And he would always put an emphasis on the importance of the local church. And I've got all these things that I've memorized. He said, Dom, if you know, you go. If there's someone who has a need, if there's someone in the hospital, if you know about it, then you go. He said, Dom, find, find men who are faithful. Faithful. F is for faithful. A is for available. I is they take initiative. They're teachable and they have a heart for God. And I can go on and on and on. And these things I actually didn't write down. It's just he said them over and over and over and over again. And Paul says the same thing here. If you want your joy to be preserved, if you want to be maximally happy in this life, then what you need to rehearse over and over and over again is the gospel. You see, growing in our Christian faith is more about faithful repetition than hearing the new thing, the new fad. We don't need that stuff. But now watch this. Paul's repetition It's not merely to improve their memory. Look what he says here. He says it is a safeguard. There is a malicious threat. So being reminded of our joy in Jesus serves really as a shield against false teaching. Why? Well, look at our fifth observation here regarding this command to rejoice. Fifth, Paul says this is a safeguard against false gospels. Now, safeguard, literally what that word means is it can't be thrown down, it can't be tripped up, it can't, it can't be overturned. And we've already learned that Paul's desire for the church is that they stand firm, they stand united. But he's talking there about the outside world and, and persecution. But what happens when people creep up inside the church and begin to introduce heresies and false teachings? And Paul says, look, Rehearse the gospel, and you'll be immovable. Know the truth so that you can discern the error. Hebrews 6.19 says this, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast. Cling to Jesus, cling to his message, and you will be safe and secure. You see, rejoicing in the Lord is a vital part of our Christian's Defensive armory. The more joy you have, the more truth you have stored in your heart and your mind, the more you'll be able to protect and defend against false gospels. And the reality is they're all over the place. There's one right down the street. There's one a block over. There are quote-unquote churches. We've said this before. The Mormon church is not a church. They don't have the gospel. The Jehovah Witnesses, they do not have the gospel. The Roman Catholic theology is not the gospel. Muslims, not the gospel. There are a lot of liberal churches, they do not have the gospel. You say, well, that's kind of proud of you. Well, no. This is what God's word says. Are you being faithful to the truth of the gospel? So again, the first safeguard, be joyful, rejoice in the Lord. But the second is be aware. It seems like Paul is making this abrupt transition from verse 1 to verse 2, but I don't think that's the case. He's saying there's something that is a major threat to the purity of the gospel. So the command to rejoice, 
to be seeking our satisfaction and delight in the person and work of Jesus, it is the surest safeguard against what he's going to introduce here are the Judaizers, false teachers, the heretics. And so he says, beware. And he says it not once, not twice, but three times. Beware, beware, beware. What he's telling us, this is a major threat. The sirens are going off. This is serious here. And Paul uses dramatic language, harsh language, to kind of jar us and get our attention. And that repetition is so good, and the language he uses, is, is it's, it seems a little provocative at first. But then we realize, well, I know why he's doing that. So we need to hear this over and over again. You know, when I get on a plane and the stewardess gets up and she starts going through, like, the motions and tells, I don't pay attention to that because I already know that stuff. But if the stewardess gets up and says, um, we're actually ex- going to be experiencing some major turbulence today. Um, we had one plane crash already. Well, whoa, wait a second. Would you, now what do we do? How do I buckle this up? What do I, what do I, where's the raft at? Like, I'm paying attention if I know about the danger. And Paul is saying, you have to beware. You have to watch out. And so pay close attention. Be on guard. You and I, we love the promises of the Bible. We say yes and amen to the promises. I will never leave you or forsake you. Boom, I'm claiming that one. I love that one, right? Uh, if, If God is for us, who can be against us? I love that one. And we claim the promises, but... In addition to the promises, there's also warning after warning after warning after warning. All over the Bible, we see warnings. Beware, beware, beware. Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the scribes. In fact, if you look at that word or those words, beware of, 11 passages in the New Testament are all Jesus. Jesus is the one saying beware, except this one here in 3.2. But all of those bewares come from Jesus himself. So he says in Matthew 6.1, beware of practicing your righteousness before men. 7.15, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but are ravenous wolves. Matthew 16, Jesus said, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. He adds Herod in Mark 8.15, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. In Luke 20, verse 46, he says, beware of the scribes who like to walk around with robes and love respectful greetings in the marketplaces. And he's not the only one that says beware in the New Testament. In Acts, Paul says, be on guard for yourselves. Romans 16, 17 says, keep your eyes on those who cause dissension and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you've heard. Galatians 5, 15, if you bite and devour one another, church, Paul says, take care that you are not consumed by one another. Be careful how you walk. See to it that no one takes you captive. Be on your guard. Watch yourselves. It is all over the New Testament. We love promises. But part of God's protection is these warnings that he gives. And so here again, we have another warning. Read, Go home and read Hebrews, and you'll realize that it's a sermon and it's all about warning. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. This reason we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard so that what? We don't drift away. Hebrews 3.12, take care, brethren, that there not be in you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from 
the living God. All those warnings. In Paul, we learn this in Acts chapter 20, he actually tells the Ephesian church that people are going to come in after him. They're going to creep in. They're going to teach false things. And Paul says, even in tears, I've warned you. I've repeatedly warned you. There are people that want to come in and destroy the grace of God working in your life. Look, sin, without a question, will diminish your joy, but so will false teaching. So let's take a look at the seriousness of these joy stealers in verse 2. Paul launches into this all-out attack, and the, the terms he uses are shocking. Dogs, evil workers, mutilators. And you say, man, does this guy get up on the wrong side of the bed? Why, why, why such brutal language? Well, look, he's got to be bold. He's got to be blunt. Because what's at stake? People's salvation. And so he attacks this head on. The sinister nature of these joy stillers. Look at verse 2. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. Now, even though he's mentioning three different things, he's really talking about one and the same. This is a group of what we call Judaizers. Well, how do we know that? There's some debate and argument and commentators uh, over who this is. But look there at verse 3. The contrast is, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and put no confidence in the flesh, which means that this group is not that. And so we have a good sense that these were those that uh, appeared in Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15 and verse 1 says this, Some men came down from Judea, and they began teaching the brothers, unless, listen to what they're teaching, unless you are circumcised, According to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And that got dealt with at the Jerusalem Council. But it didn't matter that that was the decision there because these guys began to follow Paul around. And he would go with Barnabas and Timothy and Titus and they plant churches. And then here these guys come right after them. And as soon as the church is established and they move on, they come in and they act like brothers and they begin to say, well, no, 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 you're not actually a, a Christian yet. You're not actually made right with God yet. You need to do more. You need to be circumcised. You need to keep the laws of Moses. You need to keep the traditions. You need to keep the rituals. And Paul says, you have to look out for these guys. They want to destroy you. Beware, beware, beware. Now, quickly here, this describes, I believe, their character, their conduct, and their corrupt teaching. Beware of the dogs, he says. Now, I understand that a lot of you are dog lovers. Um, that, that's cool. As long as you're not cat lovers, I guess. Um, I'm, I'm probably going to get a text message after. When I drive around the peninsula, I see dogs that are dressed up. They're sitting in cars that I'll never sit in. Um, People love their dogs. Dogs are like one of their families, their Instagram accounts of dogs. But that is not the biblical understanding of what a dog is. A dog is not friendly and cuddly, and you don't invite it to sleep with you. The biblical picture of a dog is dramatically different. They run in packs. They're mangy. They're wild. They raid garbage on the streets. 
They're scavengers. Think of hyenas. When we used to go do missions trips in Ecuador, I remember rolling up in a bus to a particular city, and these things would just come out from all over the place. I mean, just all over the place. And they were ugly looking, and they were drooling, and they're just staring at you. I'm like, I don't know if I want to get off right here. That's the picture of these dogs. And every time the New Testament talks about the dogs, it talks about them in a negative light. But listen, it's actually a term of contempt. It's a term of contempt. In 2 Peter 2.22, it says about false teachers, the message of the true proverb has happened to them that a dog returns to its what? Oh, that's disgusting. It's disgusting, but it's a description of how putrid their teaching and lifestyle is. On the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus instructs believers, do not give what is holy to the dogs. Uh, Nick actually read in Psalm 22 this idea of dogs. Luke, when he talks about the rich man and Lazarus, do you remember the little detail there? That Lazarus has all these boils and it's pussing, and what are the dogs coming and doing? Just licking all the pus. You say, that's disgusting. Yeah, that's what false teachers do. They feed off that stuff. Revelation chapter 22 and verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the authority to the tree of life and may enter the gates of the city. We say, that's beautiful. That's us. But look at verse 15 in Revelation 22. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. Now, the very interesting thing with all this What's most startling is that Paul is actually flipping it on the Judaizers. Why? Because the Judaizers would call all the Gentiles, what? Dogs. We see that with the interchange between Jesus and a Gentile woman. But but they would say, you are not part of the covenant people. You are not a Jew. The promises of Abraham don't belong to you. You are an uncircumcised, what does David say? Philistine, you are a dog. And Paul says, wait a second. You want to come and impose all of your man-made religion? You want to say circumcision is what justifies? No, 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 no. The Gentile Christians are not dogs. You're a dog because you're perverting the gospel. Very harsh words from the apostle Paul. That's why Paul says later in Philippians 3.18, he says this, For many walk of whom I have often told you, and I now tell you even crying, they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their stomach, and they glory in their shame, who set their thoughts on earthly things. So Paul says, hey, beware of dogs. Watch out. They're going to push their their pedigree. They're going to condemn those who don't put themselves under the yoke of the Mosaic law. They're evil in their character, but they're also evil in their conduct. Look what it says next. Beware of these evil workers. Epaphroditus, fellow worker, brother. These guys, nuh-uh. Why call them evil workers? I mean, shouldn't we reserve evil for like things that are really evil? Molesters child abusers, people who kill. Let me tell you why legalism is such a heinous evil. When anyone says the way that you're made right with God 
is by what you do. What they're ultimately saying is the work that Christ accomplished is not good enough. And that right there is horrible sin, evil sin, the kind of sin that keeps people out of heaven if believed. There is nothing, church, that is more evil than to disgrace the saving work of Jesus Christ. There is nothing more evil than trampling on the blood of Christ. So anytime anyone tries to degenerate, downplay, dilute, distort, disregard, disparage the finished work of Christ, it needs to be confronted. Good works are the byproduct of relationship with God, but as soon as you make them the basis You have false teaching, and you have something that will ultimately damn people if it's believed. You heard uh, that song, maybe you used to party to it, dance to it, Who Let the Dogs Out? The devil did. The devil let the dogs out. Satan loves it. And Satan sends missionaries right now in Mexico, Brazil, And in Europe, missionaries are going all over the place and preaching this message. Jesus and, Jesus plus, and Satan loves it. And he'll finance it, and he'll encourage it, and then he'll make the Christians be fighting about dumb things so that we're not opposing it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, he says, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his ministers also disguise themselves as ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. They think that they're good workers when in fact they are evil workers. Legalism is not only vicious and wicked, it's destructive. Look what it says there. Beware also dogs, evil workers, and mutilation. Now my NASB says false circumcision. The ESV says those who mutilate the flesh. Paul, he's such such a godly guy, obviously, but he's so creative. This is a play on words. You see, that word circumcision is peritome, to cut around. And what he does is he flips the word, and instead of saying peritome, he says katatome. He uses a different preposition. So rather than cut around, cut off. That's what he's saying. He's saying it's mutilation. The Jews understood circumcision to be the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, and the requirement to keep the Mosaic law, the Judaizers were insisting on circumcision as both the qualification for justification and how Gentiles convert to Judaism and become the people of God. And what Paul says is, no, 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 no. You got it all wrong. You are actually removing yourself from the covenant promises, because the reality is, from the very beginning, it was never about the outward signs. It was about what was to take place on the inside, the heart that needed to be circumcised, the heart that needed to be transformed. That is why Jesus says there is a new covenant, the cutting back of the heart. 
Galatians 5 says this, Behold, I, Paul, I say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. And church, can you keep the whole law? No. You have been severed from Christ. You are being justified by law. And if that's the case, you have fallen from grace. We don't try to come back underneath the law. The law was always a tutor to point us to Christ who kept the law perfectly. So here in Philippians, Paul likens their circumcision to to mutilation. And the word that he uses goes back all the way to 1 Kings 18 when the prophets of Baal are actually cutting themselves. And they're cutting themselves because they're trying to get God to work for them. And Paul says, you're just like them. You're just like them. You're, you're cutting yourselves. And he uses the strongest language in the book of Galatians. I wish they'd go the whole way and just emasculate themselves. Whoa. But listen to what Jesus says. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him what? Twice the son of hell as yourself. The strongest, strongest warnings, but for good reason. Listen, church, do you want to guard your joy? Then keep your eyes on the source of your joy. And be aware. Be aware specifically of anyone who would try to add works righteousness to the purity and simplicity of the gospel. Watch out for any teacher or teaching that drives you away from the Bible and drives you away from intimacy with the Lord. Verse 3, Paul is now going to contrast the true believer from the false believer. And these here are the solutions to joy stillers. Read with me. For we are the circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and boast in Jesus Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. Listen, church, you are the true circumcision. You are the true circumcision. And aren't you thankful? You don't have to go through the rituals. You don't have to go through the practices. You don't have to keep the religious calendar. You've trusted in Christ. You've bowed the knee to Jesus. You said, not not my righteousness. Right? All to Jesus. Sin has left a crimson stain. Who washed it white as snow? Not me. Not my works. But Jesus. Paul says that we are the ones that worship in spirits. We don't just worship in spirit, but we boast in Jesus. Not in what we've done, not in works of the flesh, but what he has done on our behalf. And listen, trust that, believe that, remind yourself of that, teach that. There will be ravenous wolves. There will be dogs. There will be those who are of the circumcision. And you say, well, we don't have Judaizers here. But this just continues to reproduce itself and reproduce itself and reproduce itself. Call it something else. But anyone who tries to add to our salvation by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, according to the scriptures alone, for God's glory alone, they've got the wrong message. We'll continue to look at verse 3 when we come back next week. Let's pray.
Oh, Father, we uh, are reminded this morning that our joy has a source. It is not based on our circumstances. It is not based on how well things are going for us today or how bad things are going for us today. But our joy is fixed. Our joy is stable. Our joy is in an infinitely eternal and immutable God. And so we thank you, Lord, that while some might try to still our joy, ultimately they can't because we're in your palm, in your hand, and no one can snatch us away. And so, Father, we thank you for that sweet and precious promise. But we're warned this morning by the Apostle Paul that we do need to be on guard, that there are those that want to pollute the gospel and distort the gospel. Oh, Father, how often we ourselves have lost sight of this gospel truth. And we have, even though we've been saved by grace, tried to add works and tried to be sanctified on our own. Maybe it's church attendance. Maybe it's because we were baptized. Maybe it's because we, we serve in a ministry. Lord, whatever it is that we are adding to the gospel, I pray that you would correct us. I pray that you would continue to teach us, Lord, those beautiful angles of gospel truth. So thankful even for the Good News Club as I walked by yesterday and I hear Tia and Taylor and Sam and, and others teaching our young kids the gospel. and How important that is. How valuable that is. And how people need gospel truth. Lord, help us not to sit on it and hide it away. But I think of the woman at the well. When Jesus said, there's coming a time when people will worship in spirit and in truth. When she was transformed, she couldn't help but announce it on the rooftops and tell everyone, come and see the one who told me everything that I did everything that I am, Lord, may we be like that. Having been transformed by the gospel, may we go proclaim the gospel to a needy and hurting and hopeless world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.